man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. This is a special edition of the PFT PM Podcast. Friday, August 17, 2018. We are in the midst of week two of the preseason, and there's been a question hovering over football ever since late March regarding the new rule against lowering of the helmet to initiate contact. So who better to explain it to us than the NFL's senior VP of officiating? He is Al Riveron. He joins us now. Al, how are you, pal? I'm great, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to do this, and I appreciate your willingness to answer some questions to help me and my audience understand exactly what is going to be allowed, what's not allowed, and most importantly, how it's going to be officiated in real time. And I want to make sure we're all on the same page as we start down this path. The rule I'm talking about, obviously the new rule that says as follows, it is a foul if a player lowers his head to initiate and make contact with his helmet against an opponent. Can you explain for us exactly what it is that is now prohibited by NFL players? Sure, Mike. Well, number one, let's let's just break down the words, really, because we have to break down the words for a minute. So, lower your head. There's, there's. I, I don't remember another time, Mike, and I think Rich McKay put it best when he said, "This is one of the few times that we're writing intent into the rule." So you have to lower your head to make contact to an opponent, and then the last part of it is you have to make contact. We've seen in some situations where we have the player lower their head, get into that position that, by the way, Mike, we now have the data, the engineering data, and we have the medical data that when we have players get in that position, lower their head, and make contact, it is extremely dangerous not only for the individual they're going to make contact with, but for the player that actually goes into that position. So, again, we have the data that I'd be more than happy to give to you, and we also have the medical, the medical community Dr. Sills, who's our medical expert, who has that information, who gave the information to the competition committee, and that was the beginning of the rule. So you lower your head to initiate contact. You make contact, Mike. It's a foul. It doesn't matter where it is on the body, and I think the one thing we need to clear up, and again, this is great because you have a huge audience, and I think we can finally explain to people here what we're looking for. When you make contact, Mike, it's not just to the neck or head area of your opponent. It's anywhere in the body to your opponent. And that's important because I know we've had three or four situations already where we've had a difficult time differentiating between what is a UNR on a defenseless player and what is a personal foul for lowering their head. So I think if you listen going forward, Mike, and also your audience, that you will hear a referee say, A, unnecessary roughness for contact on a defenseless player. That is a rule that was in the books already. And then B, when we have the use of the helmet, they will say personal foul, initiate or lowering the head to initiate contact to an opponent. So I think that will lead us right down the right road from now on also. Well, for the purposes of segregating when there may be two fouls at one time, and I'm thinking of the hit last night from the Jets linebacker against Colt McCoy, the Washington quarterback, that was called roughing the passer. And in past years, it would have been roughing the passer, but it's also a violation of the new rule against lowering the helmet and initiating contact. Is there one or the other that will trump? Will they say that it's both violations? How do they explain that so people, especially early in the season, understand exactly what's going on? Mike, that's a great question. And when we deal with the passer, I think most of the time we're going to go along the way of 
what's done to the passer, staying with roughing the passer. Unless we don't have that situation there, but you're right, Mike, last night was clearly a case of it could have gone either way, but I think we're going to lean towards roughing the passer as far as the explanation because I think the public is more used to this. However, it was a foul either way, the same way that we had the situation where we had the ejection a week ago in Indianapolis where we ejected a player for the use of the helmet foul. On that one, Mike, the same thing. We could have gone with a UNR because that player was still defenseless. And you raise a good point as it relates to ejection because last night that Jets player who delivered the illegal hit against Colt McCoy had another foul in the second half where he went in hot with the top of his helmet into a Washington running back, and he wasn't ejected for either one. And this may be out of your jurisdiction, but I would assume that if you have two of those in one game, you're in danger of getting a letter the next day saying you're going to be suspended for the next game. Well, let's talk about the ejection process first, Mike, because you bring another interesting point. Remember, an ejection is based solely on one act, unless we're talking about a sportsman-like rule, and that's put that aside for now. When we're talking about an ejection for a personal foul, it's not a compounding situation. It's for the one individual act. And in neither one of these two acts did the official feel that that player should have been ejected. To answer your question now, yes, there will be times, Mike, when the letter, where the player will get a letter for disciplinary action from either Troy Vincent or John Runyon. Additionally, Mike, there could be situations for this foul, for use of the helmet, where we don't pick it up on the field on Sunday or Monday or Tuesday, whenever we're playing football, and they could still get a disciplinary letter from compliance from John Runyon or Troy Vincent. And you make a great point. You could have, in theory, 10 of these fouls on one player during a game, but if no single one of them rises to the level of an ejection, you can't say, well, this is number 10, this is number 5, this is number 8, you're out. It's each one standing on its own merit, and if no single foul rises to the level of an ejection, the player stays in the game. Mike, I'm going to hire you because I couldn't have said it better myself. Okay. Well, no, I, yeah, I, you would fire me quickly, but uh, so I, w- I won't accept. I wouldn't last very long. Uh, all right, let, let me move on then. The, the rule as I see it in the playbook, or in the rule book rather, is a reformulation of the rule that was there previously, and that was the rule that outlawed lowering the helmet and essentially ramming into an opponent in the open field when you've had a chance as a practical matter to line him up and ram into him, and that was five years ago. Now, how is this different as a practical matter from that old rule? Because that old rule was very narrow and specific and defined, and I feel like this new rule is much broader. It is, Mike. You're correct. And again, the new information and data that we have from the medical community and from the engineers brought us to this point. We've been collecting video for two or three years and matching it with the injuries, with the concussions, with the neck and head injuries, and now that we see this video, match it with the data and match it with the statistics, yes, we have come to a broader rule. But we have been, and I'm going to contradict myself, yes, we have brought in a rule, but we're very specific that when you get into this position, this is what the competition committee saw from the video and from the data. When you get into this compromising position, this is what we're trying to eliminate from the game, Mike. And it is a culture change, by the way. Not only do we look at it on Sunday, when, when our men are playing football, but we have to, this has to trickle down to the colleges, to the high school, and Mike, to those little boys and girls that are playing 85-pound football down the street. 
This is where it begins. And that's why we have gone ahead and we've gotten the Legends community. We've gotten current players. We've got head coaches, Mike. We have six individual position-specific videos that were put together by current NFL head coaches showing the way to play. We're talking about defensive line. We're talking about offensive line. We're talking about runners. We're talking about linebackers and special teams. And, again, these are position-specific, by the way, that you can get and we will show them to you, and we are sharing it with all of our partners on how the way to play football. And they were great. They were linked as part of the fact sheet that was issued a week or two ago. I've watched all of them, and they've helped me better understand, in theory, what is prohibited. But what I want to better understand is the disconnect or the connection between theory and practice. And let's focus on that, because... I thought that each of the coaches did a great job explaining what is prohibited and this notion of going linear, of having your head down, your back flat, and going into an opponent, whether it's blocking, whether it's tackling, whatever the case may be. My concern, though, is especially when you're talking about line play and not just trenches firing off the ball, but when you've got guards that are pulling, when you've got a defensive player who is absorbing that block from a pulling guard and decides to drop his helmet like we saw Lyndon Johnson of the Jaguars do last week, how in the world is all of that going to be caught in real time by the officials out there on the field? It's training, Mike, and it's training for the coaches, for the players, and for the officials. Video, live, we started back in May when we went to do training camps. We incorporated again in the training camps now in August, and obviously we're getting a much better feel now that we're, prob- that we're, that we're now playing preseason games. But it's training, Mike. Is it a work in progress? Yes, and we're going to get better. Are we going to get them all right? No, Mike, but we don't get them all right on holding or pass interference anyway. Our men and women are the best in the world in what they do, but we're going to make mistakes. However, if we, stick, if we stick to the formula, lowering your head to initiate contact, that right there will give our officials an indication that there might be a foul coming. And Was then it? we have to see the contact, and then we have to rule on it accordingly. And there are going to be some situations, Mike, and you brought it up precisely. Are we going to be able to see this better in an open space than we are in an interior line play? No doubt about it, but that goes the same thing for holding and other fouls. But again, it's training, more training, and then training some more. Was any consideration whatsoever given to incorporating instant replay? Because we're talking about 15-yard chunks of real estate that will be sacrificed or not sacrificed if the call is missed based upon whether or not the officials spot these fouls in real time. Mike, that was discussed by the competition committee. I know it's been brought up again, but as you know, we have rules and bylaws that we have to adhere to. Can that change before we go into the regular season? I don't know, but that's part of what the competition committee will discuss as we go along here, and there's always a possibility. Coach Dungey and I have been communicating about this rule because he's got some questions, and one thing he was curious about as a practical matter, you may have addressed, but I want to focus on this. When there's an official out there in the black and white stripes trying to properly implement and enforce all the rules of the game what is that official looking for when it comes to this foul what's what's the trigger is it is it just flat dipping of the helmet is that the thing that sets off the alarm that maybe there's going to be a problem here we use a term mike in officiating which says your antennas should go up okay it's on your radar be ready be on the lookout for these things 
And yes, the minute you lower your head and begin to get in that linear position, that's when your antennas better be up and see the entire play and make sure you see the contact with the helmet on the opponent. But I think you said it best. The minute you begin to get in that linear position or the minute you begin to lower your head, it's where our antennas should go up immediately. Now, when contact is made, what part of the helmet is prohibited? And specifically, could someone go in face first and make contact with the face mask and be in that linear position but have the head up and not be committing a foul? Again, Mike, great question. And if you, if you go back and look at some of these coaching, coaching tapes, it will demonstrate that, that a player comes in, lowers his head, but gets his head up and makes contact with his face mask Right now, for this year, that contact is legal because the committee felt that right now, as long as you're head up, from the information that we receive from the medical people and the engineers, right now that's legal contact. That may change as we go forward, but for this year, that contact is legal if your head is up and you make contact with the face mask. And for people out there who wonder what the medical information is, my understanding is that it's been determined when the head is down, when the neck is bent in a downward motion and you apply force to the top of the head, that's when you compromise the neck bones, the C4, C5 area of the vertebrae, and you can have a very serious outcome like the one Ryan Shazier had last year. Mike, unfortunately, I'm not, I don't know about the C4 and the C5, but yes, in, in, in my layman's terms, when you put your head down, that's exactly when we get into a situation that we want to get our players away from those unnecessary risks. How much was the Ryan Shazier injury a factor in this rule being implemented this year? Mike, we don't look at just one play. We look at numerous plays, and we look at numerous plays for X amount of years. So was that play in there? No doubt about it. But I will tell you it wasn't just Shazier or any other individual. It was just a whole bunch of plays that we looked at over a long period of time. The video that you put out on Friday, and I'm glad I got a chance to study it before we did this, I thought it did a very good job of explaining the rule. Now, again, I'm concerned in real time whether or not there's going to be the kind of consistency that you ultimately will get maybe through the passage of one or two seasons. But in explaining it after the fact, it makes sense. Were you surprised how many violations there were based upon one week of the preseason? Well, Mike, we didn't have a number going in, and people would always ask me during the spring after the, after the rule was passed, oh, what do you think, three, four, five, six per game? And I didn't have an answer for that. I wasn't evading the question, but again, I didn't look at 40,000 plays, a little bit over, which is what we had last year, and look just for this specific rule. I will tell you that, as, that as after last night, we're averaging a little bit over 1.5 of these penalties per game. Is but there again, that's a very small sample size, so I can't tell you, Mike, that that will increase or decrease as we go forward. Is there an ideal number, Al, that you have in mind? No, not really, Mike, but again, I don't go into an ideal number for holding, for pass interference, so I guess we're going to have to let this one play out, no pun intended, and see where we are. All I can tell you is the numbers that we had through last night, which is about 1.55 per game. Now, one play from last week that you acknowledged was not a foul, even though it was called a foul, involved Travell Dixon of the Cardinals hitting Jeremy Davis, a Chargers receiver. And the way I looked at that, because a lot of people were like, how in the world can this be a foul? And I thought it was correct application of a very broad rule. What did you see that made you believe that it wasn't a foul? 
Well, if we're talking about the safety number 27, correct? Yes. Okay. He does lower his head, Mike, but when he makes contact, he makes contact with the shoulder. And okay. again, the rule specifically says you must make contact with your head, and he makes contact with the shoulder. And let me go there while we're on that subject, Al, because one of the concerns I have is this. You can watch videos about form tackles. They're all over the, the YouTube and elsewhere on the Internet, and it's very simple to explain it to someone when the target is stationary and right in front of the player. One of the concerns I have about this rule, when you're in hot pursuit of a player who is running down the sideline, like last night when Rodney McLeod of the Eagles was chasing James White of the Patriots, and you're closing in and trying to make a tackle, I'm trying to figure out exactly what is required of the player in that circumstance, what he's supposed to do differently other than dive in and try to make the play. Because if you dive in to try to disrupt the ball carrier, your helmet is going to necessarily be leading the way as you're rushing as best you possibly can to tackle that player before he gains more yards and ultimately scores a touchdown. Well, again, Mike, you're right. It's a lot easier to confront an individual who's in front of you than when you're in the chase mode. But go back and let, let's look at defenseless player for a minute. The responsibility on the defenseless player, even though we have mitigating circumstances at the very end of the play, when let's say the receiver moves and the defender has already committed himself, at the end of the day, it's the responsibility of the person initiating the contact to come in in a way where he doesn't put himself in an unnecessary risk position and makes the proper contact. And again, it is, it is the responsibility that we have to get more modifications in our game to be able to tackle that way or contact that way. It is a culture change, Mike, no doubt about it. And I noticed this in your video from Friday, and I also noticed it last week while watching some of the 49ers-Cowboys game. Jeff Heath, number 38 of the Cowboys, went in low, and I don't know whether he did it consciously or not, but he, he spun and twisted and hit the receiver low with his shoulder pads and really kind of the back of his shoulder pads and kept his helmet out of the fray. It sounds like to me that's an acceptable, I don't want to call it a loophole because the purpose is to not have helmet contact, but if you're going in low like that, one technique, if you could master it, would be to kind of spin your body as long as you keep the helmet out of it, you can hit the guy low with any other part of your body. Mike, and I'm glad you brought up that point also because that's one of the things that we've told our officials. If you see a player coming in with a shoulder, with a side, turning away at the last second for the lack of a better term, that should also be an indication that you have to take into consideration before you, de you determine if it's a foul or not. I've been to a couple of training camps already, Mike. Number one, the coaches are doing a tremendous job of teaching this. Number two, the players are trying extremely hard. And I've seen in live scrimmages already where I've seen players stay high, get their head up. I've seen running backs come through the line, and no longer are they looking to put their head down when they go against a linebacker or a defensive end. They're finding a way to get their head out of the game and put the shoulder back in the game. The video that was prepared by Doug Marone, the head coach of the Jaguars, had a play near the end that had a Falcons offensive lineman out in space, and I can't recall the team that they were playing. But the person that he was trying to block went low, and 
the offensive lineman tried to go low, and when you try to go lower than someone who's going low, your helmet is going to go in there first, and that was designated a violation of this rule. What does an offensive lineman in that setting do, or really anybody, if someone is coming in low and you know you need to try to get lower, how do you avoid hitting him with your helmet when you try to get lower than he is? Again, Mike, you have to use your shoulder and try to use your shoulder. And in that tape, if you remember, I think there were two or three instances where we could have conceivably a situation, Mike, where there's a foul on both players for exactly for what you're explaining right now. Because if, the, if a defensive player goes in low, initiates low, and an offensive player who's not trying to protect himself also goes in low against a defender, we could see a flag on each player, Mike. How many total penalties have been called, or, and let me, let me broaden it, how many times have you seen a foul committed so far this preseason by offensive versus defensive players? Mike, I don't have that stats as in front of me as far as offense or defense, but I do know, like I said, through 20 games, we have 31 flags thrown so far. How will it work when a ball carrier is heading for the goal line and dives head first, not trying to hit an opponent, not aiming for an opponent, not even knowing whether an opponent is there, but he dives head first and an opponent intercepts his body on the way to the end zone and he hits that defensive player helmet first. Is that going to be a foul? Well, Mike, I think you just answered the question. He was diving. He wasn't initiating towards an opponent. Therefore, it's not going to be a foul initiating, and he was not initiating, he was going for the goal line, he was going for the line to gain. When he took off, when he went off, there was no player there that he was initiating the contact to. So that's not going to be a foul. So there is some implicit requirement here, or maybe explicit requirement, that you have to be moving helmet first in the direction of an opponent under circumstances where you'd be blocking, shedding a block, trying to tackle someone, and not necessarily just simply trying to gain yardage initiating towards an opponent, lower your head, initiating towards an opponent. And if we keep those things in perspective, I think we'll all be on the right page, Mike. Everyone from officials, coaches to players. All right, let me ask you about a separate rule that was changed this year that hasn't received very much conversation or scrutiny. The unnecessary roughness rule was modified to say that it's now a foul to use any part of a player's helmet to butt, spear, or ram an opponent. The words violently or unnecessarily have been removed from that, that category of unnecessary roughness. How does that rule intersect or overlap or, or supersede the rule that we've been discussing about regarding the lowering of the helmet? Well, Mike, I, I really don't think there's much of a change there. But remember, it's all about getting the head out of the game. And as long as we're on the same page with that, I think we'll be okay. And you can extend that, too, to a defenseless player where now we offer protection to the neck and head area. So we're going all around as, 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 as we look at these rules, and we try to incorporate rules within each other to, again, keep the exposure to the players of not allowing to for unnecessary risk. Now, that expansion or adjustment, rather, of the unnecessary roughness penalty includes an exception that reads as follows. This provision does not prohibit incidental contact by the mask or the helmet in the course of a conventional tackle or block on an opponent. That language doesn't appear in the rule we've been talking about, so I assume the absence of that language 
in the lowering the helmet rule means even if it's incidental, it does not matter. Well, let's talk about incidental, Mike. If you lower your head to initiate contact, it's no longer incidental, and you make the contact. So, again, if you lower your head to initiate contact and make the contact, it's a foul. This is kind of you know it when you see it, isn't it? Well, you know it when you see it, yes, Mike, but we have to have guidelines. We have to have specific situations on paper so we can all practice it the same way. So you know it when you see it, but we can apply that to any foul, really. But I think the rules are specific and clear that if you lower your head and you initiate contact and make the contact, we have a foul. And the, the intent that's implicit in that is that the player who does this is using the helmet as a weapon. He's using, remember, the helmet is a protective device. And that's the only reason we have a helmet for a protective device. So if you use it in this way, you're not using it the proper way. Why do you think it took so long to get to the point where there would be a specific rule that keeps players from using their helmets as weapons? Well, Mike, I don't know about taking long, but I do know now that we're at the point where we have the data and we have the engineering, we have to step up and do something. So I don't know really where we, where we are here, but I will tell you the data we had from the last two or three years, it is specific that we had to do something. Is there any possibility that an official would be added for the sole purpose of policing line play for possible violations of this rule? Mike, that we have not spoken about. We're always looking in the officiating world. Do we put someone else on top? On top when I say on top, I mean up in the booth. We also looked at an eighth official. If you notice this year, we changed a couple of mechanics. Nothing major, but for example, on field goals and PATs now, we've put the umpire in the back. Why? Because we think we get a better look as to what happens to the center. We moved now on our kickoff rule. We moved an official to the back line of the restraining line of the kickers. Why? Because the rule is specific that we have to have eight men inside the setup zone. So we're constantly looking at how we can better stay ahead. We don't try to play catch-up. We try to stay ahead of what's going to happen in the game. Have we talked about putting a specific official in the box for line play? No, we have not, to answer your question. One more topic for you, and and then we'll, we'll wrap this up, and I appreciate you giving me so much time. You mentioned a couple of times that ultimately, as a practical matter, the enforcement of this rule will be similar to holding, pass interference, there's judgment involved, not every call is going to be caught. And, and, and I understand that, but from the perspective of a fan that gets antsy about inconsistencies in holding, inconsistencies in pass interference, does it give you heartburn to know that you're going to have another mini-universe of calls that may be missed, not missed, one game it gets called, the next game it doesn't, or maybe in the same game it's missed on one drive, it's not missed on another, that this is another one of these these fouls that, that interjects the possibility. And I don't want to say human error. It's just the reality. The naked eye in real speed, they're just not going to catch everything, and you've got another area of fouls like this that could potentially undermine the outcome of a game. No, Mike, because, again, we treat this like we treat holding defensive pass interference, clipping. It's just another rule that we have to make sure it's officiated correctly. And I think the bottom line, the word we're all looking for, Mike, consistently. We want to make sure it's officiated the same way when we kick off at 1 o'clock in Miami. 
as when we kick off at 1 o'clock in Seattle. Does it worry me? No, Mike, it's just another rule. And we are fortunate through our scouting program, just the same way we have the same players, the best athletes in the world, we have the best officials in the world, Mike. By the time we move someone up in the ranks of the National Football League, we have really scouted them for a long, long time and feel that they can be, that they can keep up with the game and do the best possible job on Sundays. So, again, it's just another rule that we have to enforce correctly and consistently. There's a thought that at times holding fouls that occur away from the action, away from the point of attack, the other side of the field, those don't get called because they have no consequence to the play. I get the impression that this rule, wherever it happens, whenever it happens, however it happens, if it's seen, it's going to be called, even if it's completely away from the action. Mike, this is a rule that was put in for all players everywhere on the field. No one is exempt from this, and no part of the field is exempt from this. So it can be in the interior line play, it can be a guard pulling, it could be a running back coming through, it can be a defensive back in an attempt to make a tackle. What about a quarterback doing a sneak? Well, when you look at it, when you have a quarterback stand over center, Mike, immediately the quarterback, when he hits the A-gap, he's doing what? He's protecting himself. He's not initiating, he's not initiating contact. He is going into a protective mode because he knows, he knows contact is imminent. However, you have a quarterback in the open field who now has choices as to what he's going to do that will be treated differently. But I could, I could argue that the other way, Al. I could say that the quarterback who takes the snap, and there was a time where Tom Brady was famous for this, shoots into the A-gap, and he's going head first like a missile straight down with his helmet. Does that get to a point when you are the quarterback, if you launch with enough force forward, that if you hit an opponent on your way to the first down or the end zone, that is going to be a foul? Mike, the committee looked at that long and hard, and all the tape we saw consistently was that a quarterback immediately, if he's under center, the minute he takes that first step, he's bracing for contact and felt that he was not initiating contact. Well, Al, this has been very helpful. I appreciate you taking so much time on a Friday afternoon. The goal is to help fans understand it. I need to understand it, and we want to support what the league is doing from a health and safety standpoint. My concern continues to be in practice. It's not going to be as easy to officiate as maybe it needs to be, and I don't know how easy it's ever going to be, but I understand what you're doing now, and I appreciate you taking the time to explain it, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Mike, anytime. Anytime I can help, and I'm, I'm glad to come on and try to help the fans understand where we're going. So it's been my pleasure. All right, thank you, Al. Have a great weekend, buddy. You too, Mike. Take care. All right, there he is, Al Riveron. And I'll tell you what, I'm just going to leave it at that. There's a lot to digest there. And the one point at the very end that I haven't seen anyone say that quarterback sneaks are expressly exempt from this, and there's nothing in the rule book that says that. But that's surprising to me because you could argue that a quarterback sneak, if you're going straight forward, lowered head, trying to get as many yards as possible, trying to get that line to gain, trying to get that end zone, that that would be a violation. But it seems like everything else is within the scope of this rule. I do understand it better. We have the fact sheet, and all you have to do is go to profootballtalk.com, and in the search box, if you put fact sheet in there, one of the first articles that will come up is the actual fact sheet with links in there to each of the videos done by the various head coaches. It was Doug Marone for the offensive line, Dan Quinn for the defensive line, Mike Vrabel for the linebackers, Anthony Lynn for the running backs, and Todd Bowles for defensive backs. So you'll see in there, that, and you'll hear that theme over and over again 
about going linear and lowering your helmet, and they're trying to avoid that situation where there could be a catastrophic neck injury arising from the ramming of the helmet into a stationary or a moving target. Either way, force applied to the top of the helmet that jams down into the neck of the person who is wearing the helmet. I understand that and I get that. And we've been aggressive in our criticism of this rule because I just want to be sure, number one, it's clear, and number two, it's consistently applied. And I'm still concerned there will be issues with consistency and I'm concerned we're going to have Monday mornings, we're going to have Tuesday mornings, we're going to have Friday mornings where we are saying, look at this game, the flag was thrown against the Patriots, it wasn't thrown against the Giants in the same game, and that 15 yards, it fueled a drive, it resulted in points, and if there's consistency, it won't matter. But if there's inconsistency and it becomes conspicuous, that's where the problems could arise, but the NFL has decided that player safety trumps that, and we go forward. Like it or not, the NFL season is approaching, and... uh, We'll see how it all plays out. We'll do another edition of PFT PM early next week. Junior says that he will appear on the PFT PM podcast with me early next week. So no Fridays with Florio Jr. It was Friday with Al Riveron instead. I think it was very beneficial. I welcome your input, and we will be keeping you posted on everything that happens all weekend long with week two of the preseason. Busy night Friday, busier day Saturday. No game Sunday, which is kind of weird, and then a Monday night game to end week two between the Ravens and the Colts. Check us out all weekend long at profootballtalk.com. We'll talk to you again on Monday. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.